Welcome to the fifth episode of the Atlas Society Asks. Uh, today, we are so honored to have joining us John Highbush. Um, John is the executive director of the Ronald Reagan Presidential Foundation and Institute. Um, I want to, before I even get into his introduction, I want to remind all of you watching, joining us by Zoom to, um, to submit your questions, uh, whether in the Zoom um, chat below or if you're joining us live on Facebook, uh, go ahead and just enter a question in there on the, um, in, in the comment section. So uh, John is um, something of a Renaissance man. Um, he, uh, in, in more ways than one, I might add, uh, and he can fill you in a little bit about that. His career spans philanthropy, business, uh, government, and um, he was uh, chief operating officer of Avalon Capital. Um, he was the chief administrative officer of Gateway. Uh, he was the executive director of the National Republican Senatorial Committee um, back in Bush 41, in which we both served, I as a presidential speechwriter. He was um, the chief of staff to uh, Elizabeth Dole when she uh, was labor secretary and also served uh, Elizabeth Dole when uh, she was at the Red Cross. Um, he is also author of two very uh, fast-paced, high-stakes thrillers, which I highly recommend, The Shroud Conspiracy um, and The Second Coming. So everybody who's joining us, welcome. And, um, and, and most of all, thank you, John, and welcome. Well, absolutely great to be here with you, uh, Jennifer. It's a uh... Uh, a fine day out here at the Reagan Library in California, and uh, uh, nice to see all of you. Well, um, I miss that. I miss that so much, and I and I know a lot of people watching also uh, do. I'm very proud to be um, to be a member at uh, at the library, and um, to have uh, access to all of the spectacular programming they have there. But you know, for people that just go to the library, they might not quite understand really the enormous operation that the foundation encompasses, um, including the, the new uh, institute. And I was saddened to hear about some of the damage that, that occurred there. But um, if you wouldn't mind just, you know, particularly for people at the Atlas Society telling us a little bit about, the, um, about everything that you do there. Yeah, sure. I'm happy to, Jennifer. Uh, the Reagan uh, Library is the product of, of something called the Reagan Foundation, which uh, President Reagan uh, started actually back in the late 1980s, just before uh, he left the White House. Um, the foundation supports the, the presidential uh, Reagan Library, and um, it's um, we're headquartered here at the Reagan. And uh, it's a 400-acre campus, uh, the largest and most visited of all the presidential libraries. About a half a million people uh, come through our doors each year, um, and we do an enormous um, and, and, and widely varying set of programs from scholarships for uh, seniors heading off to college in President Reagan's name uh, to 
one of the best public speaking series uh, in the United States and presidential debates and in a, a 260,000 square foot museum dedicated to uh, President Reagan and uh, his lifetime of extraordinary uh, public service and special exhibits uh, on display here that rotate uh, through the library each year, making it a, a real cultural attraction and a, a destination location in California. You know, we're, we're up there with, uh, you know, the, the huge museums and theme parks that are in Los Angeles and in quite a visited place. And thank goodness, because the mission of this place and all that we do is all about, um, you know, passing on to the next generation of uh, individualistic uh, heroes like uh, Ronald Reagan, uh, the lessons learned in the ideals and the vision of our 40th president, one of the most admired presidents in the nation. So we, we do many, many things and people pulse in and out of here. It's an ideas place. And uh, we also have a sister organization. One of our, it's our Reagan Institute, which uh, opened a few years ago in Washington, D.C. And it's, uh, it's essentially serves as Reagan in Library East now, um, and uh, we're, you know, we're proud of what we do. We're proud to represent uh, a, an extraordinary man in history and what he stood for. So that's really the essence of what we do, Jennifer. That's, um, that's spectacular. And uh, I want to remind everybody, get, get your questions in. Um, we, you also have wonderful conferences too, and the Out Society was uh, really thrilled to, to be able to participate in one of the, the conferences that you, you had for um, cultivating leadership for the next generation. And I was also really impressed that it was just, it did sort of span the, the ideological you know, spectrum. It was um, a real opportunity, unlike some conferences, you know, where kids are grouped around one idea set, which is also good for them to be able to find community, uh, but to be able to interact with, um, with young people that were from all, all different kinds of, of, of backgrounds. And, you know, there's one program that is near and dear to the heart of one of our, um, our trustees, Peter Copsis, uh, whose family helped to sponsor the, um, the educational module that you guys have, the, the Reaganomics 101. Um, could you tell us a little bit about that, how we could access it and what, uh, what stage it's in? Yeah, happy to, Jennifer. Um, we have 60,000 um, school kids from fifth grade uh, all the way up through college that come through the uh, Reagan Library at one time or another during a year and to take part in a wide variety of uh, programs. Uh, and as you said, Jennifer, a number of them uh, all about leadership and how young people today can, in the mold of Ronald Reagan, uh, you know, become become great leaders themselves. Uh, we also have a curriculum that's online that's shared with teachers and students across the nation. So whether it be a course that a, uh, a junior or senior in high school might take during the summer in the way of a leadership program or whether it be right here in our discovery center that uh, I'm sitting in today where we have 25,000 students per year come through and role play in um, in, in the Oval Offices like the one I'm uh, sitting in now, um, scholarships, it's, we are all about education and uh, what uh, your terrific trustee, uh, Peter Copsis was able to do is support our education efforts um, in essentially creating uh, 
a Reaganomics 101 course for uh, students, essentially uh, high school uh, through college in particular. Um, we got together with Peter because we were very like-minded uh, with respect to the ridiculous situation the country finds itself in from the standpoint of almost one half of our youth in this day and age uh, believing there's any value to socialism. I mean, it's the absolute opposite of what President Reagan um, uh, stood for in this. So we felt uh, in working with Peter, putting together a program where kids, especially of high school age, uh, could uh, get a much firmer grasp on uh, economics and how the free market system works, how capitalism works versus how socialism doesn't work. Um, uh, you know, President Reagan was at the forefront of intellectual thought when it came to uh, economic thinking and the freedom of the individual and the value of a small, not a large government and how taxes and regulatory burden, uh, you know, can create a real mess for our country. And so um, we're all about creating curriculum that teaches those very uh, uh, concepts and, and uh, it's being integrated into all of the youth leadership education programs uh, that we do. Um, and we're right now, I'd say about midway through completing development of all this material um, that will be uh, brought to you know, tens and tens of thousands of, uh, of students across the nation. So we're really excited about uh, launching into the, into the effort. This virus, like everything else, has slowed us down from the standpoint of uh, students aren't able to come to the Reagan Library at the present time. But we certainly look forward to uh, welcoming them once again when we reopen and also providing these kinds of materials online as well. Well, and, and speaking of the of the virus, um, uh, and President Reagan obviously um, uh, presided and, and was was a leader uh, when there were other crises, you know, that um, that his administration had to deal with. Um, but it, you know, as somebody who probably knows uh, Ronald Reagan best, how do you think that he would have um, responded? And uh, would, he, would he have done anything different um, in terms of whether it's the pandemic, the, the huge economic you know, losses that have resulted from um, these shutdowns, uh, and then also just the, the racial you know, uh, unrest that we're experiencing right now? Yeah, um, you know, the country's torn apart at the moment. There's no doubt about that. And, uh, President Reagan was anything, he was a uniter. Uh, so, you know, it's a, Jennifer, it's a, when you try to overlay a man in his time in the 1980s uh, on top of present day, you know, who knows? Uh, that's somewhat of a guesstimate as to exactly what President Reagan uh, might have done. But, uh, um, you know, having worked on Capitol Hill and worked in Washington in various jobs, um, you know, a key difference that I see between President Trump, who certainly tried his level best, it seems to me, to um, get America back to work and to protect our nation. Uh, um, he, I, I, what I have seen is the, some of the great strengths that President Trump has is he operates in many respects off of, the, off of his instincts, which can be really solid sometimes. President Reagan certainly had good instincts, but I'd say 
um, you know, he operated with an extremely set of uh, talented, uh, ta extremely talented people around him. And there was a, you know, a, a much more disciplined uh, process for decision-making uh, when enormous crises like this would erupt. And uh, so I'd say stylistically, um, I, I, you know, you won't find two individuals more dislike between President Trump and President Reagan. And I think that holds true not only in how they communicate, but also how they think and how they might act during a crisis. President Reagan in the modern day, you know, he, I think he'd be just as great a president as he was in the 1980s. And, you know, he would have uh, used his power as an extraordinary communicator to try to, you know, heal the wounds that have, you know, been caused during these last couple of crises. And, you know, I'm certain he would have performed quite well, but it's, it's a little difficult to say exactly, you know, what he might have done. Um, uh, I, I know right now what he would do if he were um, still with us uh, is he'd get his library back open. <laughs> we are presently <laughs> closed and we won't be reopening until the federal government gives us the say-so. So I, I think he'd probably give a phone call to Washington to uh, get them to uh, get us to allow us to re reopen our doors because we're certainly ready to. That's, that's a really great point. Yeah, I mean, I also think um, it's not a reflection on current leadership, but that a couple of President uh, Reagan's strengths was he had this um, incredible benevolence. You know, he had this this, this warmth and um, and also this just optimism, you know, that was really kind of built in as part of his um, character. And so the ability to project that and to invite other people into feeling um, optimistic and providing reasons to be optimistic, I, I think that was um, that was very unique. Um, and so, you know, another uh, figure, another also uh, transformative figure not not a politician or an actor, although she did have quite an, an overlap in terms of um, her interest in, in cinema and film and her experience in Hollywood is, is Ayn Rand. And um, our organization is, is devoted to um, kind of promoting uh, the, the ideas of, of Ayn Rand um, in, to new audiences in fresh ways. Uh, your organization is all about also preserving and promoting the ideas um, that, that Ronald Reagan cherished and held dear. Um, and one of the things that was similar to, to them, you know, Ayn Rand was a fierce, you know, anti-communist. And that was in part, you know, born because she lived, you know, in a communist country. She, she grew up she saw the Bolshevik revolution before her eyes when she was 12. So she came here and she was really hell bent, you know, that, but she, that was, she'd actually seen it up close. And yet, you know, Ronald Reagan brought this at the same passion uh, and, and, and um, his, his warnings about uh, communism were, you know, for a lot of people at the time, they were just, whoa, this is where's, you know, you're, you're gonna, set off another world war or something. What was it, you know, whether it was personal experience or, or things that he read, where did his um, foundation in knowing that this was really, you know, a, a, just an evil empire, where did, where did that come from for, for him? You know, uh, 
You're right. Uh, President Reagan, uh, when he was an actor um, in Hollywood um, and was president of the Screen Actors Guild, uh, at the time, um, there was a, a really serious intrusion of, uh, you know, um, communist sympathizers and, you know, literally communist thugs um, that uh, Ronald Reagan stood up against. And um, it was, a, you know, a very difficult experience in his life. Uh, you know, he was under a real threat uh, because of all that he did to try to, you know, rid the... Uh, Screen Actors Guild and, you know, essentially a Hollywood from uh, some really terrible things that, you know, if the communists were able to take control would have wrought upon his union and, you know, all that he was doing. So it, I think the beginning of his real concern for what communism meant was when he saw it up close and personal in the business he was in. Um, and from that moment forward, he made it a lifelong passion, a lifelong commitment to try to rid the world of communism. And, uh, you know, if uh, looking, looking back on Ronald Reagan 100 years from now, there's many accomplishments that I'm sure historians will point to, but there probably will be no greater accomplishment that they speak to about Reagan um, than, you know, he helped to set tens and tens of millions of people in the formerly captive nations free uh, from communism. And, he spent an extraordinary amount of time as president staring down the evil empire and calling it what it was. And you're right, he created a lot of waves at the time. And people thought that he might be driving animosity and potential war with the Soviet Union. But what he was actually doing behind the scenes with Pope John Paul, with Margaret Thatcher, with others, was laying the foundation for the eventual crumbling of the Berlin Wall and the end of communism. And I, I just know, you know, he's up there right now. If there's anything he's proudly looking down on is that, you know, we've, he did a great, great deal to set the individual free. Um, and uh, I think it's his greatest accomplishment bar none. Yeah, it's interesting that you talk about his experience in Hollywood and having seen that because, um, you know, of course, also Ayn Rand, having been in Hollywood, having um, start gotten her start, you know, like in, in, in a seamstress department, and then just even as an immigrant with not, that not being her first language, starting to read and write scripts, and then later testifying um, about the communist um, in, infiltration that that she saw and she experienced, and uh, and and there's so much, you know blowback uh, at, at the time, but um, I'm sure their, their, their paths must have crossed. Um, and so speaking of, uh, of one great novelist, Ayn Rand, who was a, a, a novelist, um, I just, I gotta say, I remember, I don't know, remember where it was that, that we were, but, but uh, I, when I found out that you had just written um, this this book that, that I was like, this is one of the busiest people I know. And, uh, you know, you had so much going on. I mean, you tell us about how many people you, you, you must have to manage and, and, and including just legions and legions of volunteers. Well, you know, that is extraordinary in and of itself. But how what drove you to write your novels? What gave you the ideas? And how long did it take you to do? And 
uh, tell us a little bit about that because it's just fascinating. And, and they're on Audible, which everyone should know. They're great. The reads are great. Yeah. Um, um, you know, thanks for the plug, Jennifer. I did two novels, The Shroud Conspiracy. Uh, my first novel and uh, the second coming is the sequel to that. Uh, they both became Amazon bestsellers for several weeks and, uh, you know, I guess surprisingly to me, you know, did quite well and I'm in the middle of writing the third. Uh, you know, I'm like uh, any number of other writers. I we have written speeches for senators and congressmen and presidents and uh, uh, have uh, written everything from, you know, technical manuals to poetry and everything in between, but I never thought for a moment that I um, uh, had the ability to, you know, write a long form piece to have the stamina and the patience to stick it out and create a plot. And um, um, so I, I just kind of set it as a challenge to myself. Uh, I sat down and wrote the first page of the first chapter one night and, you know, six months later, uh, after doing that just about every night, I had myself a novel, but I never thought anyone but my kids or my uh, wife might read it. And I, it got sent to an agent and, you know, within a week, bang, it, it was out there and Simon and Schuster picked it up in both novels and they got, both did real well. And so I, I mean, I'm happily surprised that I uh, have, you know, been able to put pen to paper and in that format and it's really fun to do. I've, I've decided I want to keep right on doing it and I've got offers to, to do that. So um, I guess it's going to be part of my future. It's just a, writing can be really fun and really agonizing. Um, um, and as long as you have more fun than agony, I, I think you, you, you keep right on writing. It, uh, it definitely is, a, it can be a very lonely, very grueling um, process. So did you tell just a little synopsis or a little teaser about, about the plot and, and did you, or the concept, and um, did you have the plot already figured out? I mean, cause it is a thriller, right? So there, it is a mystery. Did you kind of know where you were going or did it just kind of come, come to you as you were doing it? Like there were two schools. Yeah, I, uh, the, the novels are, are all about, um, they center on a plot um, involving the famous Shroud of Turin, the burial cloth of Jesus Christ. And you can imagine the kind of the good versus evil and is the shroud real or is it fake? And it's, you know, it's, it's the most famous and most important and revered religious relic in the history of mankind. So uh, the, the plot that circles around it, uh, you know, takes on a lot of dimensions. Um, I came up with the idea, you know, when I was a, a kid at 17, I was, you know, in senior year in high school and I uh, was in a religion class that uh, had a documentary about the Shroud. And I just thought it was so fascinating at the time. I said, you know, was I in watching this film, was I staring at the actual face of of uh, Christ our Lord. And I just thought it was remarkable that there'd be a relic on this earth that made that possible. And I always thought it was such a fascinating thing that it might make for a great book or a great movie, but it, you know, it was 45 years later, you know, that, that I actually got around to taking that little kernel of an idea when I was 17 and, uh, you know, putting it into 400 pages. And, you know, fortunately, I guess I got lucky and 
uh, wrote it well enough that people liked it. So, but it's a, it's a great, you know, I, I, it's a wonderful story. It really is. It's, it's all about, um, you know, someone that started out as a, an atheist, a, an anthropologist, uh, and it challenged his thinking, you know, throughout uh, both novels as to, you know, uh, faith in the concept of miracles and, you know, a lot of things that are, are really important to all of us. So um, great time to write it. And, you know, I, I'll keep right on doing, I think. Well, I, I, it's very interesting to, to me because our organization is, is about philosophy and we are um, about objectivism, which is sort of a, a reality-based met metaphysically, this is it's not supernatural. Um, and that we know things by, you know, through our senses, through, through reason. So, um, but that said, you know, I wrote early on um, my, my op-ed in the Wall Street Journal, Can You Love God and Ayn Rand? Uh, just, you know, even just as, as objectivists, I, I think it's, it is interesting to go through the process of, of looking at something which has a different kind of metaphysics and, um, and having that kind of dialogue and, and also just on the larger sense, like coming together, like about the things that we <laughs> agree with, like socialism and the importance of fighting it on, on moral grounds. Um, speaking of fighting, uh, John, you, you fought uh, also on a, on a personal level. I don't know how much you, you feel comfortable sharing, but I've also, that's, I've admired a lot of things about you. One, one of which is how you have, um, just persevered, you know, against personal challenges, and I wanted to just see how you're doing and um, and and what that ex you know experience of, of, of being a survivor and overcoming uh, those challenges, how it might you know provide uh, hope, strength, and experience to others. Yeah, I I, um, I don't mind sharing that part of my story um, because if I know I'm not alone, there's others out there that have had similar or, you know, more difficult struggles, but I had a, got a very rare form of cancer. And the moment it was discovered, I was told that's it, you know, you've got five or six months to live. It actually was in the middle of uh, writing those novels um, yeah, that I learned this. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I have to, you know, what saved me, I don't know, uh, part faith, part science. I. I uh, went through some, you know, experimental uh, procedures and experimental drugs, and uh, it took five years to knock it out. Um, so it, it was, you know, um, a, a, a difficult struggle uh, throughout, but I had so many reasons to live that I just never gave up. Uh, and I, I, you know, I, I, you know, we might hear about that or see it in the movies and, you know, people just say, get in there and fight. And um, everyone has their own way of facing struggles like that. Uh, I don't know that I've got some secret formula. I just, you know, I've got a beautiful family and the will to live. And um, that combination of things is uh, really what I, I think to, uh, helped to save me. And sure, it gives one a different perspective on life when you go through struggles like that. But I'm just one of many, many people that have faced hardships like that. And I'm, you know, one of those that has been, that was fortunate enough to survive. Well, I think it goes back to that theme we were discussing earlier, like about hope. 
and um, the importance of, of maintaining hope, you know, uh, whenever there's a possibility that, you know, even if however small it might be. Um, and, you know, a hope whether it's for a, a miracle or about something else that, um, you know, a new discovery that comes along down the road. So, uh, so I, I think that um, having hope and having the confidence that you can overcome um, the challenges that, uh, that life, you know, in front of you. I think that was probably a reminder from, from your staff that we need to, uh, to wrap this up pretty quickly because I know you're a busy man and you probably have something else um, to, to go to. But why don't I, we, we have a few questions from the audience. Um, I'll, I'll get to, to one, which uh, I think is interesting during these very partisan, but divided and yet confused and yet disruptive. You know, we have a president, he's a Republican, Democrat, Republican, what, who knows, you know. And, and now with everything that's going on, you know, it, it is sort of one of these massive shocks to the system where you, you, you people may reevaluate, you know, well, are the choices I'm making and my party affiliation, is it the right thing for me? The question was about President Reagan, about, you know, his uh, kind of political development, he, he was a Republican president, but he had been a Democrat before, right? And he had kind of changed his party affiliation. Yeah, he started off as a, you know, a Roosevelt Democrat. Uh, and, uh, um, you know, Ronald Reagan, till his last days, was a conservative and a conservative Republican, but he was an American first. And, and you know, of course, his victories and winning for the Republican Party were important to him. But, you know, he, used to, he was a John Wayne type, you know, this is a, a man who went through life with confidence and optimism. And, you know, he might uh, disagree with with another on the left or on in the Democrat side that were trying to fight against his principles. But at the end of the day, he knew we were all Americans, and we might have differing opinions on, you know, what's the best path forward. But uh, you know, he liked to end the day um, uh, as friends, even with his enemies, and you know, he was just absolutely famous for that. So. Um, you know, at the end, he was just a man with a big heart and plenty of optimistic uh, confidence that the nation could, you know, have always have brighter days ahead. And he acted that way in office. I mean, genuinely felt that way. You know, what you saw is what you got. And, uh, and, and that's a, a marvelous, you know, form of leadership. It's the kind of thing that people want to get behind and people want to follow um, a unifier like that. So, you know, labels like Republican and Democrat, yeah, they were important in the great scheme of things in order to ascend to the White House and all that. But at the end of the day, he wanted to help Americans of all stripes. Uh, and uh, and I, I think history has really, you know, been kind to, to Ronald Reagan as it, sh as it should be, uh, because he might have... Uh, that is in his time been quite controversial, but now he's looked on, you know, Gallup does a survey every year and um, he's always named as one of the top three most admired presidents. And I think he will be for a very long time. Um, one more question uh, that just came in. Where in, in today's, cause like you say, it's, it's things have changed, things have shifted. Um, where would where would Reagan find himself on the political spectrum today? I mean, I, I think he would definitely be a uh, a Republican, and 
he would have popular appeal, but I'm not sure he would be considered a populist per se. I mean, he definitely had very firm principles. He believed in, in you know, um, free, free trade, lower taxes. I mean, that, you know, so what would you say to that, that particular question that somebody sent you? He, no doubt he, I'd definitely be considered to this day a conservative, a fiscal conservative. For me, what I find that is remarkably different in today's times versus the time President Reagan was in the White House is I, you know, I think he would feel that Republicans have lost their way on the size of government and federal spending and the national debt and um, you know, Reagan, the only budgets that you know, really grew during Reagan's time uh, were the defense budget for, you know, obvious reasons, the need to stare down the Soviets through a peace through strength program. But uh, in this day and age, it just seems like there's not a spending program that even a Republican dislikes. It, it, people are, you know, in Washington rarely seem to be concerned about economic principles, the size of the deficit, and, and uh, it's going to come back to haunt this nation. And I, I think President Reagan would be very, very concerned about his own party and the lack of attention that it's paying to the size of government. And as you know, everyone in your organization would know, the larger the government, the more the individuals crowded out. And uh, this would concern President Reagan to no end, and, uh, and I think that's where the Republican Party needs to refine itself. Uh, if it's, you know, otherwise it's going to be in some real trouble someday. That is absolutely, uh, it's absolutely true. You know, there's it's just not make believe money. It, it, it does come from someplace, and um, you know, this spending all bills must eventually come due, and. Um, objectivism, we, we, you know, our ethics, don't sacrifice yourself to others, but don't sacrifice others to yourself. And um, spending money of, of other people, of grandchildren, of great-grandchildren, of future generations, uh, just seems to me like one of the ultimate forms of, of sacrifice. So, um, well, thank you, John. Thank you so much. Thank you for the extra time. I apologize to all the people that we couldn't get uh, your, to your questions. <laughs> Had some little technical difficulties, but um, but I just I really appreciate that. I love the, the, the spirit that, that you brought to this space, and uh, and particularly that idea that Ronald Reagan uh, always, even with people that he were political adversaries with whom he passionately disagreed always wanted to leave space at the end of the day for people to come back and, and to be friends and, and to reconsider. So um, that was beautiful. I, I wish you the best, John. I hope to get to see you sooner rather than later in person. And thank you for partnering with the Apple Society and thank you for all that you do. Yeah, great to be with you, Jennifer. Thanks for having me. Take care. Bye. You too.